0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah.
1: And I'm Ben.
0: Thanks for listening to us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: What are we watching today, Ben?
1: Uh, Well, uh, on this week's episode, we are watching Mystery of the Wax Museum, directed by Michael Curtiz, from 1933.
0: Our second 1933 film. Yes. And our second Michael Curtiz film.
1: Yes. So, Sarah. Yeah. This movie is set in and around a wax museum. You know, and we had the, like, weird animatronic... Museum that kind of factored into the remake of eerie tales. Yeah. Um, future horror films do wax museums too. Like there's um, House of Wax with Vincent Price and or Paris Harris Hilton, Hilton <laughs> uh, depending on what year you're in. Um, I get that. Like at one point, wax museums were popular and they were a thing that people went to. And I understand that like they're not that popular anymore because nowadays we have you know, Facebook and YouTube and and, (laughs) and Instagram and other ways to, like...
0: Entertain ourselves?
1: Entertain ourselves. But I guess the thing that really kind of flabbergasts me is that wax museums were ever popular or entertaining, enough that, like, they're just this established thing that you kind of acknowledge people went to in the past. Like, it's just creepy, uncanny valley statues of people wearing real clothes and... (laughs) How much they look like the actual person depends, uh, you know, on whether the person being depicted is black or not, because apparently wax sculptors don't know what black people look like. But um, Are you
0: referencing something?
1: Yeah, look up, like, Beyonce in wax museums, and, like, they're all terrible. No one's ever gotten it even close. Okay. So I guess my question is, like, What's the deal with wax museums? Like, why was this ever a thing that people thought was cool?
0: So I'm with you about, like, not really understanding why people like wax museums or go to see them. But uh, you're incorrect that they are not still popular.
1: Okay, they are still popular? They are still
0: popular. They are still a thing. Well, uh, okay. And, like, people still go to them. New ones are opening up.
1: New ones are opening up? New ones are opening up. I would have just figured that, like, the ones that people still went to would be, like, the established, we made money back when this was big so we can afford to keep going. The idea that new ones are opening up is buck wild to me.
0: (laughs) So the idea of wax museums and the idea of, like, representing people from history and even contemporary times is a tradition that started way back in the 18th century.
1: The 18th century?
0: The 18th century.
1: When people were just bored and creepy? Yes. Okay.
0: Specifically uh, from the funeral practices of the European uh, royalty in the Middle Ages. So I guess it was a common practice to carry the corpse fully dressed on top of the coffin.
1: That seems unsanitary.
0: Unsanitary, but also uh, if it's a hot summer day. You. So it became a bit more common to use effigies in wax for the face and the hands because the body, you just need to put, like, clothes around the face and the the hands.
1: Right, right. Like, you just stuff the clothes with, like, straw or some shit. It doesn't have to look right.
0: Exactly. Okay. Um, So that made it a bit easier to do this type of funeral
1: practice. So what would they do with the real body? It would just be in the coffin instead of on top?
0: Yeah. After the funeral, these effigies would be on display in either the tomb or the church where people were laid to rest. Uh, and this is where people could pay respects, or at the very least, pay to view.
1: That makes sense just as much as it is creepy.
0: Well, because, like, the royalty were, like, celebrities, yeah, right? Yeah. So, like, it's just the same as people driving around Beverly Hills with the map of where people
1: live. Yeah, makes sense. Still creepy.
0: Yeah. So... Westminster Abbey has Uh a collection of these wax effigies going back. Uh, The earliest one is from Edward III of England, uh, who died in 1377.
1: Yeah. 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 Wow. Did not know that. Huh.
0: (laughs) I knew this was going to blow your mind. Huh. So for the most part, it was kept to royalty or very, very important people because Mm. of this funeral practice. The first case of it being a thing of like, hey, let's cash in, is with naval hero Horatio Nelson.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense.
0: He died in 1805, and his wax effigy was actually commissioned the following year for Westminster to have an exhibit mm-hmm. of the, the effigy for people to come and see, uh, but they would charge them money to come see it.
1: Yeah, well, they probably don't have, I might be wrong on this, but they probably don't have Nelson's body because I no think
0: it's buried th- in a different church
1: yeah because like Westminster Abbey is for like royal stuff
0: yeah so that's what <clears> these wax <throat> effigies posed wax figures were becoming popular especially in France uh, there was this artist and sculptor named Antoine Benoit who lived uh, 1632 to 1717 he was a part of King Louis XIV's Court. Right. And he made 43 wax figures of the French royal circle, and uh, he would tour France with these wax figures. Uh, from this tradition of, like, touring exhibits comes the established businesses like the Moving Waxworks of the Royal Court of England, which was established in 1711 in London by a Mrs. Mary. I couldn't find what her full name was. But this had 140 life size figures, and they had moving parts that oh. would move kind of like how clocks work.
1: Oh, okay.
0: In Paris, Philippe Curtius opened his Cabinet de Seer, which is a wax cabinet, in 1770. And just over 10 years later is when he would add this uh, Caverne de Grand Voler, uh, which is Cave of the Great Thieves. And it's kind of like an early chamber of horrors kind of
1: thing. Okay, so starting to like do wax figures of like shitty people as well as like famous nobles.
0: Specifically like still famous nobles because it's with the French Revolution.
1: Uh, right. I was going to I was curious about like this idea that it was popular in France and how that was going to square with the like French Revolution.
0: Yeah, so um Philippe added this like additional part to his wax museum to kind of, like, show like, hey, no, I'm I'm with you revolutionaries. Don't cut off my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the phrase Chamber of Horrors didn't exist yet. Philippe had an apprentice whose name was Marie Grisholtz. Um And when Philippe passed away, she inherited his entire collection and tools. Marie would get through the French Revolution by making death masks of the executed
1: royals. Ah, uh, bizarre! All she, the way through, this wax stuff is very creepy and morbid and bizarre.
0: Yeah, well, so she had been imprisoned for three months, awaiting execution, because she herself was becoming very well known for being a wax sculptor. Some notable people were like, "No, no, no, not her. So she didn't get executed. But to prove her loyalty to the revolutionaries, she had to do these death masks.
1: Right. Like, it's cool and all. There's just such a strong thread of creepy running through this whole history.
0: Oh, for sure. So, listeners, if you yourself know a lot about wax museums and and things like that, you might recognize Marie Grucholtz more as Marie Toussaint. Oh, shit. Yeah. In 1795, she got married. She would travel around with this exhibit across Europe, and then thanks to you, the Napoleonic Wars, she couldn't go back to France, so she settled in London with her two sons and established the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Right. And even to this day, Madame Tussauds is the wax museum. Yeah,
1: for sure. It's the one that I've heard of, right? like Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs>
0: So it was in 1802 that she settled her exhibit in London. And later that year, she opened up what she called a separate room, which was like a side exhibit from the regular, you know, look at like these royals and uh, contemporary celebrities and and things like that. The separate room is what she advertised as a chamber of horrors. Mm. This would have wax figures of famous murderers, um... Vlad the Impaler was in there, for example. It would have uh, examples of torture being done to wax bodies. Right. And, of course, uh, her death masks were on display here Mm -hmm. as well. So for this Chamber of Horrors, you would actually be charged an extra sixpence to see this part of the exhibit. sure. Everything else, you know, the price of entry gets you through the whole thing, but this this you need to pay a little extra. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably the reason why wax museums were in people's mind in 1933 is, in 1925, the Madame Tussauds museum was destroyed by a fire. Oh, shit. With a full restoration not completed until 1928. This Chamber of Horrors was renovated in 1996 to expand the exhibit and show the history of crime and punishment over the last 500 years. More recently, they would start to hire people, like, actors, to dress up in, like, costumes and stuff and jump out at people, kind of like a haunted house.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, I could see how that might be scary when, like, you're expecting everyone to be made of wax.
0: Due to complaints from families with young children, Mm -hmm. uh, the Chamber of Horrors was closed in 2016. Oh. Yeah.
1: How about just not let young children into the Chamber of Horrors? Like, some of the rest of us want to see it.
0: <laughs> well, you can actually look up on YouTube. Um, some people have recorded the full tour. Yeah. From,
1: like, 2015. Parents still ruin everything, though.
0: <laughs> so, given that recent closure of that particular exhibit, that kind of gives you an idea of how long Madame Tussauds has been around.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, it's celebrated 250 years in 2011, and currently has... Uh, established exhibits across the world. The most recent, this year, being opened in Las Vegas.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that seems appropriate. So it's, like, franchised out. Like, she's... <laughs> like, they've got, like, satellite <laughs> locations and stuff.
0: Yeah, they're in Australia, Japan. Okay. Like, it's all over. Hmm. So does that kind of give you some insight as to, like, wax museums? Why people might be kind of interested in them?
1: I feel like it's still just, like, you can go and see, like, a creepy, uncanny valley version of a popular person, ageless and in stasis forever in a room with a bunch of other famous people. Like, it's it's all just kind of a little creepy to me still.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> but maybe I can alleviate some of the mystery behind wax museums a little further for you. Okay. Specifically in how they're made. So, at least with, like, Madame Tussaud's wax figures, which are, like, considered, like, the best in the business. Yeah. It takes around 350 hours with, like, several artists. So, the process of making a wax figure, first, the artists have to figure out what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So, especially when based off of a living person, they look at a ton of photographs, like, they really try to meet The person, in order to take very precise measurements, compare the person's real hair with some of the fake hair that they have, eye colors, stuff like that. Then they take a clay model and they sculpt it with the head as a removable piece, since that's where a lot of the detail goes. Mm -mm. Once that clay has been finished being sculpted, it goes into a plaster mold, and then once that plaster is done, like, once you have the mold, then they fill it with wax.
1: Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That makes sense.
0: And then once they have the wax, they sculpt that to the likeness. Um, they use hand-painted acrylic eyeballs.
1: Yeah. All right. Sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, they take molds of the person's teeth to like have acrylic teeth that matches their actual teeth structure. Sure. I guess. Yeah. Um, they use oil paint and like several layers of it to get things right really bad figures will just have wigs thrown on them but in the case of Madame Tussauds uh they actually place hair strands individually okay. to make up the head of hair and like eyebrows and stuff like that
1: like a barbie doll yeah all right a
0: very intense barbie doll yeah 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 um and the reason that people will use wax even like going back to the middle ages like wax would be fairly cheap like you would just have like all of this candle wax Lying around, right? But it's also very malleable and easy to shape. Um, you can add textures, so they can look incredibly lifelike.
1: Right, and it's and you don't have to like you know heat it to like some ridiculous temperature to get it to be malleable, or like you don't have to like use a t- iron spike chisel to like cut it away. Like it's just easy to work with.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that it can look so lifelike too mm-hmm. is. Uh, why it gets used so much, and why, like, the Chamber of Horrors got closed, because, like, if it seems so lifelike, and you're seeing, like, torture. Like, I looked up the video of, like, sure. that took you through that thing, and, like, it was a little creepy. Like, I mean, it was a Chamber of Horrors, for sure. So, like, I can see why, like, wax museums also lended themselves well into having that side exhibit.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Does that kind of, uh... Allow you a peek behind the mystery <laughs> of wax museums.
1: I see what you did there. Yeah, I mean, that that explains a lot, at least, like, where they came from and why they exist. I still find... But
0: what do they want?
1: <laughs> I still find the whole thing baffling that people find them, like, so popular and fascinating to, like, go to them and stuff. It's it's wild to me.
0: I think it's, like, again, with the thing with about celebrities, like can't go to see the queen like in England but I can travel to New York to see the exhibit of the queen in Madame Tussauds New York office
1: yeah it's just the whole thing is very weird and morbid to me because like the, the, the wax figure of the queen will never change right like I go to see the queen and then ten years later I go to see her again she's ten years older I go to Madame Tussauds to see the wax queen and I go there ten years later and the wax queen is as youthful as ever she has not changed when <laughs> I myself have changed.
0: Why is that creepy to you versus a painting of the queen?
1: Probably just because it's not, like, three-dimensional and wearing clothes. Okay. Like, like, a painting's like, ah, I, this is a portrait. And, like, the wax figure's like, yeah. I mean, I suppose it makes it, like, appropriate for, like, horror movie usage. That's yeah, for sure. for sure. It's just weird to me that it's, like, a, a thing that people go to see and do. Speaking of using wax museums as a setting for horror movies, uh, we should maybe talk about this week's movie, Mm -hmm. Mystery of the Wax Museum. Really wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Dr. X. Dr. X had been Warner Brothers' first entry into the horror genre, really, and it had been a success for the studio, both commercially and critically. By the rules of Hollywood, that meant that a follow-up was uh, certainly in order and had to be you know, made and pushed out as soon as possible to capitalize on the success. For the most part, the cast and crew of Mystery of the Wax Museum are the exact same as they were in Dr. X. So a lot of their backgrounds and details can be found in our Dr. X episode, which I believe was episode 33. Uh, so for example, director Michael Curtiz returned from Dr. X, having shot two more movies in between uh, (laughs) in the second half of 1932, uh, as, of course, did stars Lionel Atwill and Fay Ray. And if you listened to last week's episode, you'll know that they shot their footage for this film first and then found time to appear in The Vampire Bat before post-production on this movie was completed. (laughs) Uh, Also like Dr. X, this film was shot by cinematographer Ray Renahan in Two-Tone Technicolor. This part of the movie's production, however, was motivated less by a desire to imitate Dr. X than it was by pragmatic reasons. In our Dr. X episode, uh, I talked a lot about how Warner Brothers had this contract with Technicolor to produce films in their red and green Two-Tone process. But audiences had kind of turned against Two-Tone Technicolor because of how unnatural the color tones that resulted looked. Mm -hmm. So when Warner Brothers made Dr. X, they had intended that to be their final film in this process, kind of burning off the contract. But when they made Dr. X, they had only paid Technicolor to print the film in color for major urban centers. Uh, And then when it came time to rural areas and internationally, They distributed the film in black and white. Mm. So Technicolor claimed that this violated their contract and that therefore Warners would have to embark on the expense of another two-tone film to finish their association with the company. So Mystery of the Wax Museum would be the final studio feature film shot in the two-tone Technicolor process. Ever? Yeah.
0: Like with Warner Brothers or just like ever, ever? Ever.
1: Wow. And Technicolor founder Herbert Kalmus uh, actually declared it the ultimate achievement possible in the two-tone technique. Now, uh, Technicolor had by this time developed their three-strip Technicolor process with red, green, and blue that produced much more realistic, vibrant color tones. But they were under an exclusivity contract with uh, Walt Disney at the time. (laughs) For a few years, Disney had exclusive use of three-tone. The uh, story for Mystery of the Wax Museum is an original. Uh, it's based on an unpublished short story written by the screenwriter of the Charlie Chan detective movies who basically just wrote like a little short story to sell to Warner Brothers for to be turned into this movie. Uh, so it's, it's essentially an original story uh, set, of course, in a wax museum. However, the intense lighting needed for Two-Tone Technicolor uh, led to all the wax figures (laughs) melting from the heat during shooting. No! So um, the wax statues that you actually see in the film are being portrayed by live actors trying their level best to stay absolutely still because the lighting requirements for Technicolor meant that they just couldn't use actual wax statues. They're
0: expensive, yo. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) They're
0: so expensive. Oh, I can't... I just imagine, like, the producer being like, what do you mean they all melted?
1: Yeah. So, instead, it's just actors. Just actors pretending to be wax figures. Okay. The one major change from the formula of Dr. X to this movie was replacing Lee Tracy's fast-talking, comical, newspaper reporter character with a fast-talking, comical, lady newspaper reporter character, uh, played by Glenda Farrell. Farrell was 28 when she appeared in Wax Museum. She'd been acting in theater since she was seven, but caught the eye of Jack Warner when he attended one of her plays, leading to her big debut as the female lead in Little Caesar the Warner Brothers gangster picture that also made a star of Edward G. Robinson. Mm. That hit 1931 film resulted in a long-term contract with the studio for Farrell. She ended up appearing in approximately 40 films between 1931
0: and 1936.
1: Wow. Often being teamed with Joan Blondell as a duo of smart and sassy, wisecracking, dames. (laughs) In Mystery of the Wax Museum, Farrell plays a cynical, hard-boiled reporter because in the 1930s, journalism was a fairly unique field in that it was one of the few places that a career woman could work as equal to a man in -hmm. terms of position. Uh, So that's why you see a lot of these lady reporters in movies from around this time. Farrell would end up playing a similar character in 1934's Hi, Nellie, before finally reaching her greatest fame and success in 1937 when she was given her own movie series by Warner Brothers, Torchy Blaine, Girl Reporter. (laughs) Uh, The tagline of which was that she can speak 400 words in 40 seconds. That's great. Starting with the film Smart Blonde in 1937, the Torchy Blaine series would run nine films overall, with Farrell playing the role in seven of them. Actress Lola Lane would sub in for her in the fifth film in the series, and Jane Wyman would appear in the final entry in the series. So I kind of shouldn't even have to say this, but yes, Jerry Siegel cited Torchy Blaine as being the inspiration for comic book character Lois Lane. Mystery of the Wax Museum would open to mixed reviews on February 18th, 1933. Some critics thought the film was too morbid and gruesome, and others considered the story unconvincing and the ending to be quite weak. The film uh, would make money, grossing... $300,000 on a budget of $220,000. Not exactly lighting the world on fire, but it did do better in the UK than it did in the US.
0: As has been the trend.
1: Yeah. Uh, The film would actually not be reissued after its initial release, and like its counterpart, Dr. X, it was presumed to be a lost film after Technicolor discarded all their two-tone negative archives in 1948. Uh, however, it was discovered in Jack Warner's private vault after his death in 1978 alongside Dr. X uh, and finally shown again at a special gala at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in L.A. with fei Ray in attendance. Since that time, uh, it has been issued on DVD by Warner Home Video, but there are currently no streaming options for the movie.
0: So if you are checking out screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com for our YouTube playlist, this film is not on it.
1: Yeah, uh, if you want to watch along with us, you're going to have to wrestle up a copy of the DVD somewhere.
0: Yeah, well that's alright. Folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss the film.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. All right, everyone, welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933, directed by Michael Curtiz. Now, this is um, our second time seeing this movie. I know I've seen it once before this, and you have. Yeah. Did your opinion on it change at all, Sarah?
0: I remembered it being a lot scarier. Okay. Yeah, but now having seen it the second time, I think Dr. X is definitely my favorite.
1: Okay, of the two? Of the two. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. What about for you? Yeah, I thought you had said at some point in the past that you liked this one better, so it's interesting that your opinion has switched.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure why, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure we'll kind of figure that out as we discuss.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the film opens in London in 1921, and Lionel Atwill's character is a wax sculptor named Igor.
0: Ivan Igor.
1: Ivan Igor. <laughs> I think this is our first like Igor Igor name to show up.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Right. Anyways, he's from a foreign country, not that you could tell by Lionel Atwill's accent, which he doesn't bother to change at all.
0: It seems like he's doing a bit of bit of a French.
1: Which like in the opening. Yeah, Ivan Igor. It's <laughs> not very like yes. I am from Paris. I am Ivan <laughs> Igor. Like, mm, no. Um, so anyways, Ivan Igor is a wax sculptor. He has his own wax museum. And uh, some rich British folk come to see it uh, late one night. And they're like, wow, this is some really amazing work that you do here. And he's like, yes, especially my Marie Antoinette, which is incredible. And the best <laughs> thing ever. And looks just like Fay Wray. They're like, oh, man, like, you sh- we should definitely get you into the Royal Academy of Art or something like that. Uh, can't do it right now, though. Got to leave on rich English colonialism business. But when we come back, for sure, in the Academy. So he's like, great, like, my fortunes are turning around. That's when Joe Worth shows up, and he is Ivan Igor's shady business partner. He loaned... The money to get the wax museum up and running and you know whatnot and it's been failing they're not doing well because there's a rival wax museum in town that shows all the gruesome violent stuff that people want to see. Joe Worth is like listen we're not making any money on this but we can burn the whole place down for the fire insurance money and get out of here with 10,000 pounds and Ivan Igor is like are you crazy? this is all my art Oh it's worth stating Ivan Igor is definitely crazy. Because he definitely refers to all of his statues as his children and is super weird about them all the time. Yes. So he's like, you can't possibly do this. A fight breaks out between the two men and obviously the place burns down in the course of the fight.
0: And Joe Wirth locks Ivan Igor inside.
1: Yeah, he, he makes it out and locks Ivan Igor inside to die. Cut to New York, New Year's Day, 1933. We find out that Ivan Igor has moved here um, he's in New York now. We also learn that popular model named Joan Gale has, uh, died. And the police are pretty sure it's suicide. But there's some wiggle room on that because her and her former love interest, uh, millionaire George Winton, have had some falling outs lately. But they find her body apparently overdosed on laudanum, which is, of course, opium and alcohol mixed together. Uh, and they take her out down to the morgue. This is to be an opportunity for spunky reporter Florence Dempsey, who's played by Glenda Farrell. Florence has been threatened by her editor, Jim, with being fired. She doesn't come up with a story soon, so uh, she's following the story of Joan Gale's... Possible murder. Possible murder. When what should happen? But Joan's body is stolen from the morgue by a horrifically scarred-faced dude in a fedora and like black cape who looks like a dick tracy villain (laughs) so now with the body stolen this whole thing is you know kicked into high gear florence believes that winton who is in jail currently on suspicion of the crime could not have done it since you know the body was stolen while he was in jail so why would you know he do that and all this sort of stuff and she's going to try and prove that winton is innocent and did not kill joan so it just so happens that Florence's roommate is this gal named Charlotte, played by Fay Ray, And Charlotte's, like, the kind of lady who, you know, wants to marry for love and settle down, and it doesn't matter, like, what we have so long as we have each other. Whereas Florence, as a career woman, is like, yeah, I'm not quitting the rat race until I find myself a rich man. Uh, And that's sort of their dynamic. Charlotte is dating Ralph. (laughs) Uh who works as a sculptor at the new New York London Wax Museum, <laughs> uh, which is the, basically the reopening of Ivan Igor's wax museum, but in New York. Uh, so he's spent a lot of time since the fire trying to restore and recreate his old works, but Ivan Igor is now only able to get around through use of a wheelchair. His hands are like all severely burned and he can't do anything with them. So he's got all these assistants doing all the work for him. And Ivan Igor is a real dick to Ralph because Ralph's not like a thousand percent brilliant. So it must be that he's lazy. Like, Igor's is just a real ass. Anyways, who Igor is happy with is a worker of his called Professor Darcy who looks totally like just a bum off the side of the road who brings in fully completed and brilliant looking Sculptures because he works from home, and you should be more like him, Ralph. We learn from other scenes that Professor Darcy, who I want to point out because I didn't realize watching it, is played by Arthur Edward Carew.
0: Yeah, who was in Phantom of the Opera. Yes,
1: he was the Persian in Phantom of the Opera. He was also in Cat in the Canary. Yeah, and he was um, the professor with the eye patch in Doctor X. Yeah. Cool. I didn't realize that while we were watching the movie, I didn't realize it until, like, I saw the cast list. (laughs) Anyways, we learn from some other scenes that Darcy is a junkie, as they say in the movie, uh, some kind of drug addict, and that he's also under the thumb of Joe Wirth, who is still alive and has also come to New York and is running a bootlegging operation (laughs) and supplies booze to George Winton. So everyone's all connected. Everything kind of comes together because Florence ends up at the Wax Museum because she accompanies Charlotte there one day to meet Ralph for lunch. And Florence, being a spunky reporter, is nosing around and she spots the Joan of Arc display, supposedly by Professor Darcy. And it looks, you know, exactly like Joan Gale. Suspicious. She and Winton tail Professor Darcy to Worth's bootlegging operation. And Florence kind of sneaks around inside, sees the Dick Tracy villain-looking guy who we saw steal the body earlier, and is convinced that the body's in a big crate at the, in the basement. Uh, she calls the cops in, and all they're able to do is find that the crate contains all the bootleg alcohol and kind of smash down this bootlegging operation. But they do capture Professor Darcy and take him in for questioning. Then it's the, you know, the opening night for the Wax Museum, You know, it doesn't go great, but, like, maybe Igar should stop being such a dick about everything. At the end of the evening, he sees Charlotte, and she looks exactly like his old Marie Antoinette statue that was his favorite statue. Uh, So he gets kind of obsessive and invites Charlotte to come back the next day to potentially pose for him, uh, for him to make a new statue and she's kind of like
0: yeah sure yeah he's very creepy about it he's
1: very creepy about it the next day uh she does go to the museum but not to pose just to kind of like look for ralph to apologize for an argument that they had and uh when she shows up igor kind of through a series of lies manipulates her into the basically mad science laboratory at the basement of this wax museum where he confronts her kind of locks her in there's a big like bubbling vat of wax uh and he stands up from his wheelchair and he can totally walk around just fine and reveals to her that like he's gonna turn her into the Marie Antoinette statue meanwhile like Florence has kind of put enough pieces together to figure out that yeah they've been basically stealing bodies and embalming them in wax to create these super lifelike wax sculptures. The way they find that out is the cops get Professor Darcy to talk and find out that uh, he was connected to the death of Judge Ramsey, which is a whole other plot that has to do with, like, an earlier case that Florence was on, because this movie's bizarrely complicated. Yeah. But that sends the cops and Florence and Witten all to the wax museum to like, go stop Igor's evil plans while he's threatening Charlotte and she's kind of like doing the thing where it's like the helpless damsel kind of banging at the guy with her fists and knocks his face clean off because it turns out that Lionel Atwell's face is just wax and he's actually super horrific Dick Tracy villain underneath and has been the whole time since the fire Uh, and that, like, you know, obviously he's all evil and mad and crazy now uh, and it's revealed that at some point along the way, he uh, has killed Worth and gotten Worth's body in a big crate. Uh, so victory, revenge, haha! Uh, but now he's going to take Charlotte and strap her to a table and dump a bunch of wax on her to turn her into a statue. Ralph shows up to rescue Charlotte. Doesn't do well in combat with Igor. Florence and Winton lead the cops in. They all bust in and they're the ones who take care of Igor. He gets shot and, of course, falls into the big boiling vat of wax, and then Ralph manages to turn the machine off just in time to save Charlotte. And at the end of the film, Florence, you know, goes back to her editor, who all throughout the movie, like, didn't believe her and wouldn't support her in anything, and she was totally right about everything and has this amazing scoop. And instead of going with Winton, who fell in love with her over the course of the movie, she just sort of changes her mind and decides that she's going to marry... Uh, Jim, her editor. The end. Whew.
0: So there's a lot going on in this movie.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of subplots. And the the sort of central thing of, like, Igor has gone mad with obsession and revenge and is murdering people to turn them into wax statues, there are parts of the movie where that gets really sidelined in favor of other stuff. I will say that, to the movie's credit... Everything does connect and have to do with one another, but there's just a lot of stuff that they didn't need. Yeah. Uh, that's, like you said, extraneous.
0: It really reminded me of Phantom of the Opera.
1: I can kind of see that, because, like, you've got the older dude who's got the secret scarred up face who's obsessed with this younger woman.
0: And, like, lures her down into the bowels of this building. Mm -hmm. Arthur Carew is in both. (laughs)
1: Sure,
0: yeah. Yeah, they're just like atmospheric resemblances.
1: For sure. I mean, I do think this movie has pretty good atmosphere. Like, I really like the production design and the sets.
0: Yeah, you can see German Expressionism right up in here. (laughs) It's great.
1: Yeah, there's kind of um, an interesting mix in this movie between sets like the basement lair, which is kind of this cavernous It's like a very contemporary take on a gothic style, where instead of, like, stone, it's all girders and metal. Yeah. Um, And then they mix that with the kind of gritty urban realism of stuff like the the bootlegging headquarters and stuff like that, right? That have a bit more of a, a realism to them.
0: Yeah. It's funny that you bring up those two settings, because the places where I felt the German expressionist influence the most in this film was in... You know, the basement where, Mm -hmm. like, you have the tub of the boiling water and everything. But also when we're in the basement of the bootlegging place. Because we have, like, this, like, strangely zigzaggy (laughs) staircase staircase with secret corridors that are, like, clearly, like, with painted light in some of these corridors. It's funny because, like, the way that that building is with the bootleggers, it's German Expressionist in the basement but Film Noir like, the, next the co- story Yeah,
1: sure, yeah. <laughs> what movie do you think had a better look or used the, sort of, the two-tone Technicolor to its most advantage, this or Dr. X?
0: Dr. X. Yeah? This one, it felt like it didn't care that it was two-tone Technicolor. Mm. You know, it's like, like, you could see some of it with Florence having, like, a green dress and hat with, like, a red flower thing poof on her hat, um, but it wasn't as vibrant or standoutish as it was in Dr. X. And we talked a lot during that episode of Dr. X about how the production designer and people making the sets and everything and even Faye Ray herself had an eye to the two-tone Technicolor when dressing themselves or anything like that. Whereas in this film it was like, yeah, it's going to be two-tone Technicolor because it has to, let's just make this movie.
1: I feel like one of the things that contributes to this is I feel like this movie spends significantly more time in the real world, if that makes sense.
0: Versus Dr. X where we have the real world, but then we go off to this like mansion on a cliff.
1: Yeah, like like pound for pound, Dr. X has more time spent in this kind of uncanny horror atmosphere, whereas um, Mystery of the Wax Museum does do that. And it does that in those scenes that you've already identified as having that expressionist feel to you. You know, it goes into the world of crazy horror. But a lot of its running time is spent in a more recognizable world of looming poverty and sex scandals and crime and drug addiction and bootleggers. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of the movie that's very grounded until it meets up and connects with the horror plot.
0: I've spent a lot of time thinking about whether this movie fits in the horror movie genre. Yeah. Or if it's more in a mystery thriller genre. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really like to discuss that because I think you could make a case for it either way.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's really only at the climax that we really dive into traditional disturbing horror territory, right? Where he's threatening Fay Wray in the basement.
0: A little bit in the prologue as
1: well. Yeah, in the prologue, exactly. But the middle stretch of this movie is mostly a movie about Glenda Farrell's character, Florence, being a spunky reporter and uncovering this kind of complicated conspiracy. I will say I appreciate that, like, she drives the plot. Yes. Every step of the way. It's not like Lee Tracy as Lee Taylor in... Dr. X, where he's just kind of there in the corners of the movie bumping into things and scaring himself.
0: Yeah, though it does make the climax feel strange when Florence doesn't get to do anything except scream and run for the big men to come do things.
1: Right, and she, like, yes. And I think this is fascinating to me from, like, a modern perspective. Because, like, Florence is, I think, structurally... She's the protagonist of the story. Yeah. Right? And and, uh, Igor's the antagonist. And they're, at least certainly, the two of them are the most significant characters with the most screen time. So I find the split between the female leads in this movie to be really interesting. Because Florence, because she's the protagonist and she's driving the plot, and she's the single career woman, she doesn't get really presented to us as a romantic figure or as like particularly beautiful or anything that's saved for Faye ray and because of that like it feels like fey ray is in this movie because they needed a damsel in distress to imperil at the end and it wouldn't be appropriate to imperil florence's character because she's not a beautiful romantic lead she's the protagonist if that makes sense Like, it's this weird, like, having to color within the lines thing where, like, we've given Glenda Farrell essentially um, a masculine role. She's the story-driving protagonist. Therefore, she can't be the object of imperilment in the climax. It's got to be a different woman who fits a more traditionally feminine role in the story as someone's romantic interest.
0: And I think, like, if they had had Florence be the person in peril mm-hmm. at the end. It would have been a much tighter movie.
1: Yeah, cuz like there's there's really not a reason for Fayray to exist other than to be the damsel in distress at the end. Yeah. And then the crazy part becomes that because Fayray's the damsel, but our protagonist is still a woman, Florence can't rescue Charlotte. So now we've got the character of Ralph who's Charlotte's love interest, who exists solely so that there's a guy to come in and rescue her at the end and to be her love interest. Because if Florence rescued Charlotte, now we're making, like, a whole different kind of movie.
0: Yeah. Right?
1: I mean, like, they already <laughs> live together. Sure. <laughs> um,
0: but, like, I think if Florence had been the damsel in distress at the end, but still characterized as she is... hmm It would have been a lot more of a a Lois Lane type of deal of, like, getting herself, putting herself into danger. She would have totally been like, oh, you think I'd make a good movie Antoinette? Of course I'll come in after hours to pose for you and also pick up some clues on the side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of extraneous characters who exist because, like, the mores of the time say that you have to have them. Fayray's there just so that we can have the damsel in distress because Florence can't be the damsel in distress. Ralph exists because a man has to go and rescue Charlotte, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And like.
0: But he's just as hapless he's, as. He's terrible! Just as hapless as Raoul from Phantom of the Opera. Yeah,
1: he goes in there and like monster Lionel Atwell just punches him out. He's not good. No, he's like a rag doll. So the actor playing him, Alan Vincent is just nothing. Like, I've complained a lot about these nothing romantic leads in these movies. This guy might be the worst one. <laughs> like, I, I, in two weeks I will have forgotten that this character was in this movie.
0: I didn't um, remember he was in this movie. Yeah,
1: he's less than nothing. You know? Um, he just exists to serve this role of being connected to Charlotte so that she gets introduced to Igor so that he can come to her rescue. Like, because it's like, otherwise Charlotte would have never gotten preyed upon. Yeah. Then you've got Gavin Gordon, who plays George Winton, who seems to exist just so that spunky reporter Florence Dempsey has...
0: Potential love interest. A potential
1: love interest so that we don't just have, like, a single woman who's not attached to anyone, because, like, heaven forbid. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's, like, also kind of a waste of space and time for the most part. He's a little better than Ralph because at least he drives Florence around everywhere (laughs) where she needs to go. Um, She, like,
0: snaps her fingers for him to follow. Yeah. the best. Yeah,
1: like, he proves his worth for sure. Which, I don't really know if you're ready to talk about this yet, but, like, the ending of this movie bothers me.
0: For sure. So we get introduced to Fay character, by um, you know she is talking with Florence about like Ralph and like how much Charlotte is in love with Ralph and that's what they'll live on love mm-hmm. and Florence is like yeah just tell that to the landlady yeah and is totally cynical about it uh, I love her um, and then Florence has this millionaire saying like I think I've fallen in love with you in just a day and then at the end she just because her editor in chief is like that story wasn't any good shut up or marry me
1: and then she just does like yeah she just it doesn't make sense i get what they're going for but it doesn't make sense i think it's supposed to be like a joke i
0: feel like the only reason he's there is because this is like a prototype of that girl reporter series mm-hmm. right Um, this movie has, like, so many genres kind of smushed in here, (laughs) where we have girl reporter with, like, dude editor as one thing, and then, like, she has to somehow bridge that, she is in Florence, has to somehow bridge that movie into this horror movie and meet up with Winton, Mm -hmm. um, and then same with, like, yeah, what you've already talked about with Charlotte and Ralph having to be... Shoved in here, too.
1: Yeah, like, we have this extra set of protagonists that we don't need, really. So the thing that really bothers me about this ending is... I get that the... Like, you know, she takes... So her editor's name is Jim. She takes Jim in her arms and she kisses him, and that's the end of the movie. is like, her being like, yeah, for sure, I'll marry you. And, like, she actually... Winton's waiting in a car (laughs) out the window, like down, like she, like he's like, hey, why don't you marry me? And she looks out the window and Winton's like waiting for her there. And
0: he like waves. Yeah, and then she turns around.
1: She turns around and is like, yeah, for sure I'll marry you, and like kisses him. So it's like a direct rejection of Winton for Jim. And I get that the, like, what they're trying to say is that somewhere along the way Florence has like learned the errors of her ways in terms of her materialism, and, you know, has learned the value of love, and is going to marry for love instead of materialism. Which doesn't work, because, like, A, there's no arc leading up to that at all. Like, she doesn't learn that lesson anywhere in the movie. The movie isn't about her learning that lesson. She just turns on a dime at the end. And furthermore, Witten turns out to be a pretty all right guy. Like, He's a millionaire, which is what she wants. He's in love with her; that's a plus. He's willing to drive her around on all her crazy adventures. That's a that's good. Although, uh, it's
0: not clear whether he did in fact kill his previous girlfriend.
1: Yeah, they never really answer that mystery. That is true. Yeah, so I mean,
0: maybe, maybe maybe he's a murderer.
1: Florence doesn't believe that he is, so yeah, you just... know. But meanwhile, Jim. Never believes Florence, ever. All their scenes in this movie are that kind of, like, 1940s, like, friendly, antagonistic banter thing where, you know, he thinks she's totally out to lunch and she's like, ah, I'll show you. And, like, he's not very supportive with her. They're constantly fighting with each other. It just comes out of nowhere and it's just there to, like, reinforce, like, these traditional romantic values when it's like you had a traditional romantic couple in Ralph and Charlotte. So you didn't need to, like, force this on Florence's character, but, like, I guess we can't have a single lady gold digger reporter out there. That's just not acceptable. Like, it's it's a very frustrating ending, Sarah. Yeah. So Lionel Atwell's pretty great in this movie.
0: He is, but he seems a little bored. Yeah? Yeah, he did a much better performance in... Dr. X of course maybe even vampire bat.
1: Well, he would have done this before vampire bat in terms of his point yeah. of view. I'm just saying. I I liked to see I liked seeing him really cut loose as like a mad villain cuz he was kind of a fake out.
0: There's a few potential people who are the Dick Tracy <laughs> melty face villain.
1: Yeah, prune face. <laughs> um <laughs> But, like, for me, it's pretty obvious it's Igor, though, right? Like, it's not as much of a twist as it was in Vampire Bat.
0: I mean, like, you have Hugo, who is this deaf guy That's who right. happens to wear a black cloak and black fedora that we see him put on, and he unintentionally threatens Charlotte at one point. Like, it's clear that Igor isn't 100% okay. Mm hmm. But the it, the movie seems to lead you to think that he's controlling Hugo in some way.
1: Right, sure, fair enough.
0: So there is there is that. I don't know, I just felt like maybe it's because the only time that we really get to have a sense of focus on anyone other than Florence is with the prologue. Yeah. And with Dr. X, we got to see a bit more about him. Like, we got to see how Dr. X was like, those meddling fools, and yet also, like, really intently want to find out who is committing these murders. Here, maybe it's just that he doesn't get as much to do, but it just seems like he's a little bored by having to do this.
1: He's in the wheelchair for a lot of the running time, which limits his performance. And then, once he's out of the wheelchair, he's behind the makeup, which is, like, it looks like it's a pretty heavy mask. Yeah. So that limits his performance again, which is again why, I like, the prologue where he's able to just be himself. Is pretty good. Yeah, yeah.
0: And also, I think because, as you've kind of pointed out, Igor is just, like, this one note. You're not working hard enough, Ralph. Be more like Darcy. Because it's so one note, it, again, feels like, you know, he doesn't have much to do. He seems a little bored. I don't want to paint this movie in the wrong light, but, like, knowing that they're just making this movie because I have to get out of this contract. Might as well make, like, another horror movie because it seemed to do well last time. with these same stars throw in this spunky reporter element because that seems to be hot right now. It does feel like a movie that's just, like, churned out. So it doesn't feel, like, as exciting as some of these other ones that we've seen. That being said, it's still a fun movie. And I don't want it to sound like cuz it focuses on Florence t- so much, no one else gets anything to do. Like that's not what I'm trying to say. I think it's great that it focuses on Florence. Florence so much. is great. Yeah, she's fantastic, but it does lead me to wonder what genre this maybe fits in because with the focus on her, it again feels like a lot more in the mystery thriller territory versus the horrific parts of it which are like the Lionel Atwill stuff with the prologue and the climax.
1: Yeah, like there's there's definitely like two movies happening here, right? There's a a horror movie starring Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray, and there's a mystery thriller starring Glenda Farrell, mm. and they're just connected with each other. When I say I enjoyed Atwell's performance, I mean it mostly I enjoy him once he kind of shows his true colors and is kind of all manic coming after Faye Ray. Yeah. Um It's just fun to see him kind of cut loose and (laughs) and go for it and go a little over the top. It's also kind of interesting to get, like, a mad artist as a villain instead of a mad scientist. We've had a lot of mad scientists lately, but it's still the same kind of, like, your obsession has led you to go too far kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, like, they don't say it explicitly, but I feel like the reasoning behind what he's doing is that because of the fire and his hands being kind of deformed, he can't actually recreate the perfect children he had before. Yeah. The closest he can get is by embalming corpses with wax that happen to look close to these things. Yeah,
1: so it's his obsession with his past successes and not being able to replicate them.
0: It's this craziness with perfection. Yeah. It's almost like a... Pygmalion thing a little bit. He's in love with his creations.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's just like, there's too many threads going on in this movie sometimes. Like, the thread of worth, right? Who, like, is the guy who screws over Igor. And then he's kind of threaded in these random other scenes in the movie that make you go like, wait, what does he have to do with any of this? Like, what's going on? And then he dies off screen. Yes. We don't get to see igor take his revenge we just get told about it after the fact like there's some plotting stuff that's like like everything does connect and sew up nice there's no plot holes just structurally in terms of the way the story's told it feels like sometimes the beats are not happening in the right place Mm -hmm. it's tough because i think when this movie is horror it's horror but when it's not it's not Mm -hmm. like i know that sounds like tautology but you know the setup is horror there's a lot of the creepiness we associate from horror. There's the kind of villain we associate with horror and a damsel in distress threatened by a monster. The Earthsat's hero of Ralph is kind of powerless to do anything about it and all that kind of stuff. But then there's this long section in the middle that's a kind of a crime mystery story with a spunky girl reporter, like, figuring out the mystery.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm trying to think of, like, would this have been more horror if... Florence had been the damsel in distress at the end or would it have been more thriller if she had been the damsel in distress at the end rather than this other third-party character?
0: I think it would have been more horror regardless of who was being threatened if we didn't have this ending of, yeah, I'll marry you. Like, yeah, I succeeded in getting this story and, yeah, I've learned something about materialism.
1: One reason why I think maybe it would be more horrific if Florence herself was threatened is because Florence is for all intents and purposes, the audience surrogate. Mm. And Florence is never really directly threatened. Um, She's a little too canny for that a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm not sure, because you can certainly, like, if you take isolated scenes out of this movie, you're like, oh, that's definitely a horror movie. But I don't know if the parts are enough to add up, Um, because certainly, like, I could probably take some scenes out of, like, a random James Bond movie and maybe make them look like horror if you didn't know what was going on, well, right?
0: Well, it's, it's like those trailers for movies, like if Mrs. Doubtfire was a thriller or horror sure, movie, right?
1: If I took, like, the climax of Live and Let Die out of context, you'd be like, oh, is this some sort of weird voodoo horror movie? Um, and it's not. Yeah. So I'm not, but, like, I'm not entirely sure that's what's happening here. I'm undecided as to whether the some of the parts add up. I will say that like this movie was marketed as a follow-up to Dr. X, which was a horror movie, um, and I think this movie was produced as a horror movie and like meant to fit in that mold to play on that trend of the time. So certainly horror was the intent.
0: Even looking at some of the horror films that we've watched that have been a little less horror than, say, the top five of the list. Sure. Like, this movie kind of fits with that. Like, I was thinking of The Magician. hmm Where uh, we have long stretches of Paul Wegner doing, like, stuff at casinos. Right. And whatever. So this idea of, like, stretches of something that isn't quite horror isn't unheard of in a horror movie of of this
1: time. Yeah. I think... The other thing that maybe we're starting to see is there's starting to be a little bit of backlash against horror, right? Like, Old Dark House and the Mummy didn't do that well at the box office. They did better in the UK, but they didn't do that well in the US. You know, Island of Lost Souls had this massive reaction where it was banned in the UK and really controversial with censors at the state level in the US. And I think what we're starting to maybe see is a response where the producers of these movies are trying to play it a little safer. Maybe ease back on the horror bit and give it a little more comedy, give it a little more crime, give it a little more mystery, you know, throw in things that are doing well. Because they still, there's still a desire for horror. The movies are still making money. There's still this trend. But like, maybe we crossed the line with some of the films in the past let's stop pushing the envelope as much and pull back a little and i think that's what's happening here Mm -hmm. where it's still like identifiably a horror movie in terms of like what the climax of the film is and what everything's building towards but the way we get there is a little different especially with this being like a warner brothers movie like This feels like a Warner Brothers movie. There's there's cops and detectives and reporters and, you know, we're in New York and there's morgues that we go to and bootleggers and 1930s, you know, hard boiled kind of gritty atmosphere. So it's a Warner Brothers movie until it's a horror movie, really, it's like what's happening. And that's maybe I think what's going on. Which makes it interesting that critics thought this was too gruesome and that it also didn't do very well in the U.S., but better in the U.K.
0: I suspect the reason why it did better in the U.K. is Madame Tussauds is based in the U.K. still. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't expand to become an international business or anything until way after this.
1: I feel like there's definitely an inspiration, too, because, like, if Madame Tussauds had had the fire in 1925, you had said, and yes. then, like reopened in 28. And this is about like a London wax museum that burns down in 21 and then reopens in New York in 33. So there's a little bit of inspirational overlap for sure.
0: Yeah. The audience of the time finding this very gruesome is because like there's a lot of, from what I've read, there's a lot of body horror with wax museums and their chamber of horrors. Okay. And this, while it isn't like body horror in the sense of like video <laughs> or the fly or whatever. The premise is that there are corpses on display here. Yes. Like Arthur Carew says that sorry, Professor Darcy says that it's a morgan there. Like yeah. um like that's a pretty gruesome thought. And like I didn't find that terrifying or anything like that because I have we've progressed beyond that because we're post-Saw. Yeah, we're, we're a very a post-Saw
1: desensi- world. We're very desensitized, yeah.
0: Yeah, but I, I can see why people would find it very, very gruesome.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just sort of interesting that, like, if this is an attempt to pull back on being, you know, too much for the public and it's still being seen as too much, like, we're seeing public taste sort of turn against the genre.
0: Which is interesting because the genre's only been... For for Hollywood, it's really only been like this one year and a bit. Yeah, right?
1: like like Dracula came out in early nineteen thirty one, and we're now in early nineteen thirty three. So like, and I mean, thirty two was when we really pumped them out, but like, we've basically had two years at this. And you know, maybe it's part of the fact that this was a period when Hollywood could pump out these movies. Mm. People talk about um, having franchise fatigue. These days, and it's like, can you imagine if they could follow up like a successful movie like Star Wars with like thirteen other Star Warses that very next year? Yeah. Right. How how sick of it you'd get. So maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a very short rise and fall. That's for sure.
0: I feel though in talking about the genre and talking about this, um, I am comfortable considering. Mystery of the Wax Museum, a horror movie, rather than a mystery thriller.
1: I'm comfortable with ranking it. I think it should be ranked and go on the list because it was produced in this cycle. It was produced in this mold. Uh, Even if they bring in a lot of other genres.
0: Produced in this mold?
1: (laughs) Sorry. Um, Even if they bring in a lot of other elements to try and water down the horror. Mm -hmm. So are you ready to move into ranking then? Yeah. All right. Uh, where do you want to put Mystery of the Wax Museum?
0: Um, so I kind of hinted at this earlier with bringing up the magician, but my ceiling is the bat sitting at 24. Okay. And my floor is above the sealed room sitting at 27.
1: All right. You're a little lower than I am. Uh, as, as
0: is typical, it seems.
1: Okay. My range is between numbers 17 and 21, Okay. Uh, So a little higher than you. My ceiling there is, like, I don't think this is better than White Zombie, Mm -hmm. uh, which is number 16, but I was willing to talk about it in comparison to stuff like the original Student of Prague, mostly because I wanted to give the possibility that this was better than Dr. X. After the discussion, I think we've sort of talked it down from that kind of possibility. We've cut off that road to this movie going down from Dr. X, I landed at 21 as my floor. I felt that I could maybe have a discussion about whether this was better or worse than The Mummy, but I was feeling like this was better than The Vampire Bat because I overall enjoyed, you know, we talked about how this movie's watered down. I enjoyed the way this movie watered itself down more than The Vampire Bat. The comedy in this movie suits my comedic tastes a lot better, where it's not the pratfalls of Lee Tracy or the hypochondria of Maude Eburn. It's just that our protagonist, Floris Dempsey, is very witty and, like, sharp-witted and sassy. And I'm good with that as being the source of comedy. And also, like, just the production value in Wax Museum of the the sets and the lighting and the, the scale of the movie just suited me more than Vampire Bat, which is, like, we borrowed the old dark house, and we went down to Bronson Canyon. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) so that was kind of my feeling there. That's why I ended up a little bit higher than you.
0: Okay. I think the reason why I was looking around 24 to 27 is because before we were discussing, I think I was actually leaning more towards this movie being a mystery thriller Mm -hmm. Um, but now after the discussion I'm definitely like no this is a horror movie and so I I am comfortable looking higher. Um, I don't think this is better than Dr. X so let's kind of discuss the range between below Dr. X at 19 and above Vampire Bat at 22.
1: Okay and your ceiling was the Bat right at 24? Let's maybe extend a little lower then. Maybe it is worse than Vampire Bat. I'm not sure. So let's 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 chat that through. Sure. Um, would you be willing to say that? Because like at one point in the discussion, you were saying that you maybe liked Lionel Atwill better in Vampire Bat than in this movie.
0: That's really just because like Lionel Atwill had kind of more to do, right? Mm. Like whether he was able to bring this through in his performance, the first half of that movie. Lionel Atwell's character is, like, leading the detective and leading the town along with, no, it's a vampire bat. Right. Like, there are blood-sucking vampire bats in South America. Yeah. And kind of leading them on. And even though he wasn't, for whatever reason, able to bring it into his performance of, like, being a bit more, like, menacing or a little less obvious about it in the second half, you know, kind of being a bit more suave about it, he had more to do... Than just yeah. sit in a wheelchair uh, talking about how beautiful his children and Faye Ray
1: are. Right, and being grumpy at everyone. Yeah. Looking at other elements between those films, because Vampire Bat was designed to cash in on this movie. So that's why I think it's it's interesting to compare, you know. For sure. Were the, were the audience members that accidentally got tickets to Vampire Bat <laughs> actually ending up seeing a better movie or not? Faye Ray doesn't really get much of anything to do in either, other than be threatened at yes. the end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and like, I feel like we have to stress this. I know we talk about it every time. Faye Ray's very good as a damsel in distress. She's so likable. She has such a, a likable screen presence to her that it really gives those roles more of a sense of personality than they would have... In the hands of a lesser actress, I guess you could say
0: definitely. And we've seen how, in the hands of a lesser actress, those roles can just be boring and like not even have any kind of like thrill in the danger.
1: Yeah, for um, sure. If
0: yeah, if the actress isn't up for it.
1: Exactly, but she's basically equivalent, I would say, between the two films.
0: Yeah, I mean, like she gets a little bit more to do in Vampire Bat because she's like his uh, lab assistant
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, versus just. The roommate of a reporter and the fiance of a sculptor in a this movie. A sculptor's
1: assistant? Yeah.
0: Yeah, a sculptor's
1: There's assistant. There's like, like, why isn't she one of his sculptor assistants, right? Anyways. So then you've got other stuff in Vampire Bat, like Melvin Douglas and Dwight Fry, you know, then versus, say, the supporting characters in this movie, who are a bunch of flat personality list nobodies and Glenda Farrell as Florence Dempsey.
0: Yeah. I think the reason why the vampire bat kind of struck me so, struck a chord with me, is because of the Dwight Fry storyline mm-hmm. of showing this town's paranoia go after. Uh, I think his name is Herman. He mm-hmm. um, did this last week. I should remember people's names. Um, that's what really interested me in the vampire bat. Yeah. What really interests me in this movie. Is Florence getting to see her be really cool and awesome, and a bit of the like the whole idea of a wax museum of corpses <laughs> is really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, it's it's appropriately morbid.
0: Yeah. Um, Whereas Vampire Bat wasn't necessarily. I mean, actually, no, never mind. Because it's like draining blood from someone's neck
1: to right? to feed this artificial sponge life form.
0: Yes. So they're both pretty gruesome.
1: Yeah. um, it's. I mean, it's got to be worth a little bit of something that Florence Dempsey's great. Yes. That Glenda Farrell is great. Because I can't think of another movie we've really seen up to this point that has a female protagonist who isn't the object of imperilment. Like, there's a lot of... These movies have had significant female characters with a lot of screen time who get to do a lot, but they're always still the ones under threat. Mm-hmm. Florence isn't really ever under threat. Uh, and she's clearly the protagonist who drives the story along. Like, can like I can't think of any other examples up to now.
0: No. And what's interesting with her, too, is, like, you kind of pointed to her as, like, the means to distract the viewer from the horror, mm-hmm. yet she's also the means that is allowing us to get to the horrific parts. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like, she's much better integrated into the story than Lee Taylor was in Dr. X, who or, basically was serving the same role.
0: Yeah, or even the aunt in Vampire Bat.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, that, I think, is worth a lot versus Vampire Bat, is that our, our comic relief character is, like, a badass, great lady reporter spunky gal who <laughs> won't take shit from anybody, you know what I mean? Like
0: yeah. So how do you feel about ranking this above The Vampire Bat, then?
1: I'm I'm for it. I just kind of wanted to talk it out with you and see where you were at.
0: So then, this movie versus
1: The Mummy. I kind of want to put it above The Mummy. Really? Tell me more. It's mostly just because The Mummy's boring. (laughs) And it's just Dracula, but in Egypt. And I like the cinematography in The Mummy, but I like the two-tone technicolor... Red and green shadows, bizarreness cinematography in this movie more. And Boris Karloff's good and all, but like, no one else in that movie really is.
0: The dude who goes crazy in the prologue. Right,
1: he's great. This movie has Glenda Farrell and Fay Ray. The mummy has Zita Johan. Zita Johan is kind of a big bag of nothing. <laughs> Glenda Farrell and Fay Ray are both great as kind of two sides of, like, what a woman was allowed to be in a movie back then. So I just kind of, like, The Mummy's a classic. I get it. Carl Freund's really good. But rather watch this movie, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, but this is a ranking of horror movies. True. Not movies that Ben would rather watch.
1: True. There's the moment in this movie where Fay Ray is struggling with Igor and his face crumbles away and it's all like Phantom of the Opera underneath. Meanwhile, how cool would it have been if like, you know, ZD Johan had been struggling with Boris Karloff and like started tearing away at his like paper thin ancient face and had like crazy like undead look underneath or something. How much better would that have been? That would have been so cool. Right. So, I think I'm okay with ranking this above The Mummy.
0: Cool. Cool. Now we're in competition with Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is really hard for me, because Murders in the Rue Morgue really tries to to distract you from the horror. Yeah. And it's not well integrated at all. Yeah. This, in Mysteries of the Wax Museum, it's much more better integrated, as we've already kind of discussed. Mm-hmm. But oh boy, did Murders in the Rue Morgue give me the chills in a way that this movie did not.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I totally, 100% agree with you. It's like, Mystery of the Wax Museum is a passable plate of spaghetti. There's some noodles, and there's some spaghetti sauce. Those are two things that taste good together, and it's decent. All of it's decent. Good spaghetti sauce, good noodles. Not the best you've ever had. Not the worst you've ever had. Murders in the Rue Morgue is, like, some really, really good spaghetti sauce. Like, the best spaghetti sauce. Like, it's got ground beef in there and all kinds of amazing spices. But it's on mashed potato. <laughs> and it shouldn't be. That's not what that goes on. They don't go well together at all. But if you can get some of, like, the ground beef and the tomato sauce and the, and the spices and the meatballs off to one side and eat it without getting some of the potato taste in there. It's great.
0: I really want to try spaghetti sauce on mashed potatoes now. (laughs) That might actually be delicious. (laughs) Uh, Cool. So I take it we are ranking Mystery of the Wax Museum below Murders in the Rue Morgue, but above The Mummy?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty okay with that. Like, ultimately, I think that Mystery of the Wax Museum is a more coherent movie that is better integrated overall, but if we just sort of separate out the horror bits from the two and compare them, like you said, Murs and the Rumor goes for it in a way that Mystery of the Wax Museum doesn't. Even if Wax Museum has the better integration and the more coherent story.
0: I'm very comfortable with this ranking.
1: Alright, so entering the list at number 21. Mystery of the Wax Museum. From 1933, directed by Michael Curtiz. Just two spots below Dr. X.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also see links to previous episodes, so you can see what a movie that Ben describes as mashed potatoes and spaghetti sauce is like. (laughs) On our website, you can also find an appeals box. Uh, You can also send us suggestions or concerns through there. Or you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to also follow us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you at underscore ScreamScene.
1: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday. We're hosted on SoundCloud and on iTunes and are available through our RSS feed on multiple podcasting apps there's going to be an FCC decision in the United States about net neutrality on December 14th. Well, a vote. There are five commissioners. There are three who are against net neutrality and two who are for. Now, Sarah and I are up in Canada, but the fact of the matter is, is a lot of our listeners uh, are from the States. And if suddenly there are problems with accessing our podcast because of decisions that your ISP is making uh, down there because suddenly they don't have to follow any rules and it's just the Wild West, that's going to negatively impact us. So, um, you know, understand that it's going to negatively impact everyone. And do what you can to try and switch one of the votes over because that's all it needs is one vote switched over to pro-net neutrality. If things go bad and... uh, (laughs) and net neutrality in the United States dies, um, please utilize all of the various means of getting in contact with us that Sarah just told you about to let us know if there are any interruptions in service, if suddenly you can't get the website that you listened to us on before, and we'll do what we can to make sure that we're available on as broad a platform number as possible. Avoid the real horror story and keep the net free. That's a corny line, Sarah, but probably effective. <laughs> Another public service announcement. Um, I know it's towards the end of the podcast, but stick with me here, guys. We are really excited that in a few weeks we're scheduled to watch La Llorona, the very first Mexican horror film. Yes. Um, unfortunately, while I have been able to find a copy of the film, courtesy of like the National Mexican Cinematheque, essentially, There's no English subtitles, so we won't know what's going on. So we kind of can't watch the movie. If you can locate or you know where we can find a version of La Llorona from 1933, because there's a lot of versions of this movie, with English subtitles, uh, please let us know. We'd really greatly appreciate it. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, how would you like to have your third... Straight week of Lionel Atwell, Sarah. I would be very happy. Okay, well, he's moved over to Paramount, and he's starring in a Paramount horror film, Murders in the Zoo, (laughs) from 1933. Okay. Uh, And it's also going to feature Kathleen Burke, who we will remember as the Panther Woman in Island of Lost Souls. Paramount
0: has done pretty good.
1: They've done pretty good. They've got the number one and number four films on the list. So I'm pretty excited to see this movie because I don't really know a lot about it.
0: Well, there are murders and they happen in a zoo. Yep. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.